so you got the Kelly Slater Wave Park, which is generating one experience, and then you've got the the Cove from Wave Garden, and then you've got the BSR one, and Palm Springs Surf Club's got a different one, and Urban Surf's going to is using the Cove, and you've got all of these different manufacturers producing different technologies to create waves, and they're uh, they're successful in creating high volumes of quality waves, which is actually if I go surfing down here in Laguna, you know, if I have five waves, you know, it's a pretty good session. But I know I could go to BSR or the Palm Spring Surf Club and maybe get 20 waves. It'd be pretty unbelievable. Caught my first tube this morning. Sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. Hey guys, this is Chris with Beyond the Ocean. Super excited to bring you our next conversation today with Mr. Ian Carnes. Ian is a surfing living legend. He's been a competitor, a coach, contest director, and promoter of surfing over the years. He's a former champion surfer himself and was incredibly influential in establishing the world professional surfing circuit as we know it today, including the formation of the ASP, the Association of Surfing Professionals, and influencing the WSL, the World Surf League, which is where we all get our pro surfing action and content today. Ian's role was to help devise and develop a rating and scoring system for surf events. So he's been there from the very beginning on what makes a great surfing experience. Today, Ian is still leading the way in terms of his role, helping to democratize access to surfing through some new projects he's working on, which we talk about in the interview. He's also toured many of the leading surf park facilities out there, uh, including the Kelly Slater Wave. So He's got some really good insights into what those waves are like, what makes a best-in-class surf park experience, and, and really just how people can think about surf parks fitting into their repertoire. So without further ado, please enjoy this super fun conversation with Mr. Ian Kenga Carnes. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm doing good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And I'd love to just start and kind of have you share a little bit about your background and what you're working on. I uh, lived in Sydney as a kid. Got my first surfboard at, at Avalon. I used to borrow boards out of the uh, Surf Lifesaving Club and you know got the bug for surfing. Before that, I rode, made some pipo boards in a wood shop. And my dad taught me how to body surf with a hand plane. So it's, it's funny. I see all these pictures of Little Avalon recently with the big swell in Sydney. I used to surf that on a pipo board, kneeling up on a piece of plywood before I even had a surfboard. So Christmas of 1965, I got, a, got my first surfboard. And in January of 1966, we got in the Falcon, me and my brother and sister in the back seat, and we drove two and a half thousand miles to Perth. And my dad had rented a house about uh, five doors from the beach at a surf spot called Isolated, 
in Cottesloe and Perth. And effectively, that's when my surfing life began. You know, up before school, out in the surf after school, rain, hail or shine, pretty kind of crappy waves, small reef breaks. In um, Later in 1966, I took a trip down south with some friends from a surf club and discovered Yelling Up and Margaret River. So little did I know, you know, a three-hour drive from Cottesloe was the North Shore of Hawaii, effectively. You know, there's incredible reef waves, big, powerful, and, you know, I discovered that I like doing that stuff. I started doing that. I won a bunch of state titles and mostly in good surf. I was on the West Australian team in 1967 and watched the greats. You know, Wayne Lynch was in my junior division, but I watched Midget Nat and Keith Paul and Robert Keneally. I mean, Ted Spencer, all the great names of Australian surfing, Midget Farrelly, became friends with Midget and got boards from him. And Midget taught me how to shape. So after I finished high school, I went to Sydney, 18 years old, learned to shape, just started traveling. That was one of the first times that I actually drove across Australia after myself. In those days, the trip across Nullarbor was about 1,200 miles of dirt road, the main highway, and uh, literally two-lane track and you know, just so bumpy. But right before you get into South Australia or actually the inner South Australia, there's a break called Cactus, which is an incredible you know, group of reef breaks just sort of on the edge of the Nullarbor Plain in the desert. There's a, a whole uh, subculture of driving and traveling in Australia. Our deal was if you had a couple of guys with a 1,000 miles a day, that's how far you'd drive. So that's 20 hours times 50 miles an hour. And uh, we drove to Melbourne, we drove to Sydney, we drove to Brisbane. It was just so much time in a car. So that's how you got around in those days. I saw you posted uh, recently uh, that open top Land Rover. That was a Land Cruiser. Land Cruiser, beautiful. Yeah, I had one of those things, man. It was all steel inside. If you hit, and of course, when you're off road, you're bouncing off the, the uh, side of the car. And yeah, you got multiple bruises, but we used to bush bash to get, you know, go and find waves. You would just drive through the bush because in Australia, you have the huge steel bars on the front called bull bar, and you could just mow stuff down. And growing up in Western Australia, before there was a national park, searching for waves, discovering surf spots, naming surf spots, beaches with no footprints ever. That was how I grew up, just the most amazing experience. Western Australia is still wide open like that because there's not many people. But, you know, surfing waves, you see all those waves way up north, Kalbarri and Nalu. You know, it's 400 miles from Perth to Kalbarri. To get to Nalu or to Carnarvon, it's another 600 miles. The coastline is cliff. That's 600 miles with a gas station every 100 miles and about a billion kangaroos to hit. Just the experience of traveling in Australia is, I mean, you literally know what nothing looks like. There are no people, you know, 100 miles to the next gas station. It's actually really, really liberating to just have that freedom to be out there in the middle of nowhere. That was growing up. I came was on the Australian team in 1970 and met Corky Carroll and a bunch of really cool people on the American team. And then in 72, I was on the Australian team for, at San Diego. And that was PT, Rabbit, 
Michael Peterson, Mark Richards, Simon Anderson. Like if ever there was a rock star surf team, that was it. We hung out in San Diego and surfed there. And that was when I got my first trip to Hawaii. You know, I got off the plane and went out to the North Shore and was surfing Velsiland and the swell came up. And that afternoon I was surfing Sunset Beach. And uh, Sunset Beach is like yelling up or Margaret River. They're just bigger and more powerful. So I had this really great foundation laid for big waves. It was politically, there was no IPS, ASP, WSL. There were just individual event promoters, and it was super hard to get into the events. In the house I lived in in that first winter in 1972, Paul Nielsen won the Smirnoff, and Grant Oliver was third, and we were living in the same house, and we'd surfed the day before at Haleiwa. And I know I surfed as well as those guys, but I couldn't get in the event. Next year, when I went back, 1973, I was on the North Shore. Uh, I was planning to stay the winter at $150 was my budget to stay the winter. And I rock up at Laniakea as the second alternate in the Smirnoff. And the entry fee was $100. So I gambled my whole winter on entering this contest. But Laniakea was 10 to 12 feet. Massive northeast swell, incredible long right-handers, just absolutely smoking, unbelievable, beautiful. And I made it through my first heat, through the next heat, through the semifinals. I'm in the finals. I'm making money. And only two of us in the six-man final, Jeff Hackman and, and I, sat way out the back. And the set comes, and it's a 12-feet, four- or five-wave set, and Jeff just goes for this wave, and I'm screaming, go, go, go. And I paddled over, and the next one was bigger and better. And I rode that thing. And Hackman says that he looked over his shoulder and saw me on the next wave, and he knew he was done. So I went from an alternate. In those days, the Smirnoff was the world championship to world champion. Won $5,000, which was huge money back then. And all of the angst and confusion and lack of confidence that you have because you, as a, a competitive athlete, you spend more time losing. To actually be validated by winning that event and being invited to the Australian Sportsman of the Year, it was not only a dream come true, but it was also because I didn't go to university. I just went surfing, learned how to shape. You know, my dad was an engineer, so I took this left turn. And to have the validation of winning that event and making money like that, Back in those days, a normal salary for a week was 100 bucks. So I quickly was earning more than 100 bucks a week shaping surfboards. But winning that event was like, holy mackerel, you know, I could be a pro surfer when there was no such thing. That was 73, 74, 75, 76, 77. I went back and competed there and I ended up winning six World Tour events the Duke of Hanamoku in 1975 and 30 foot closeout Waimea. I surfed the Smirnoff when it was even bigger. I actually got caught inside paddling out after swimming and pushed under closeout Waimea, held under my board. Because in those days, there was no rescue. You lost your board, you died. So it was really interesting time. So, you know, we were actually fairly incredible swimmers because we had to be. And, you know, so surfing the whole North Shore without leashes, learning how to hold onto your equipment. That's a whole set of experiences that no one gets to have these days. 
that whole idea of being confident in absolutely mind-blowing, stupid conditions and knowing that you're able to swim in safely. That's a, you know, a level of confidence. And the idea back in those days was pride in being able to hold on to your board, pride in being able to push under waves. Because we were out in the water with Eddie Aikau Clyde Aikau Barry Kanaipuni, some of the most iconic names ever in surfing. And you had to hold your own against those people. It was absolutely an amazing, amazing time. I mean, I know guys that, you know, they're surfing incredibly now, but there's a lot of people that don't have that entire waterman knowledge. How do you lose your board at sunset? Where do you swim? Now, there'll be people that are probably maybe even on the tour who've never had their leash break and had to swim in at sunset. I mean, it's an experience. How do you think the bush bashing and exploration of your early days kind of drove you and helped motivate you and increase that confidence when you were actually out there competing in this world stage? In those days, I mean, we were poor. You know, we didn't have much money. You, I had to work to buy my car and didn't buy a new Land Cruiser. I bought an old Land Cruiser with miles. You know, I've welded stuff to put roof racks on. I think it makes you more self-reliant and makes you confident that you can overcome things. When you're out bush bashing and you get bogged, there's no tow truck, no AAA. You dig it out yourself. You jack it up. You know, you find some brush to put underneath the wheels and you get out by yourself. The whole idea of being self-reliant is part of it built into our character as Australians from that era. And then brash and confident. We're brought up to be, you know, have pretty wild banter between people. You've got to learn how to hold your own. And sometimes, you know, it comes across as pretty rough and outback to Americans, but it's just our way, you know. And if you can't hold your own, you go to the pub and you can't hold your own, you're in trouble. And so it's just that whole background, you know, you didn't have options. Did I want to, you know, stay, keep working for my parents or did I want to make a, a way for myself? So I had to succeed. There was no backup plan. There was no million-dollar-a-year Quicksilver sponsorship. What's going on today? And, in fact, I think that money has actually really been a major negative in the whole idea of professional surfing because it actually strips a lot of people of motivation. Like, you know, if you're already making a huge amount of money, you know, oh, so I didn't win, no big deal. Well, if we didn't win, we didn't eat. So there's a really big difference in terms of motivation. In a lot of times, you know, when I'm coaching people, I come across as pretty hardcore. But the bottom line is uh, there's some people out there that are hard to beat. And you better be darn hardcore or more hardcore than anyone if you want to maximize the potential of your talent. What kind of coaching are you doing now? I coached the USA team for a few years and we won three world titles, you know, in the world games with pro surfers like Corey Lopez and um, Ben Bourgeois, Sage Erickson, and also Courtney. Like, that was a pretty cool team in Costa Rica. I won the Masters in El Salvador. You know, my wife Alyssa was on the, the women's side and Jimmy Hogan and Tom Curran and the men. And uh, I won the World Sup Championships with uh, Sean Pointer, who I went and coached and helped him win the World Professional title. It's actually really, really satisfying to win. And it's a, you learn as a competitor, I mean, it's, there's a lot of losing going on. So when you win, you know, it's, 
incredibly satisfying. And as a coach, it's the same thing. You do a lot of losing. And then to figure out the game and figure out how to motivate individual people to be their best, that's a, a massive intellectual challenge and personal relations. I'm pretty straight talker because you only get one chance at being a young world-level athlete and you can't piss the time away. Like the time is now and you've got to work hard and you've got to work harder and harder and be more self-critical than you've ever been for anything or else you get beaten by some other mad dog. Now, in these days, it would have been, you know, the old days would have been an Aussie or a Hawaiian, but now it's some Brazilian come out of the favela where he's going to go back and, and die in the favela as a drug dealer, or he's going to win a world title surfing. The motivation for people who come from hard backgrounds is pretty hard to beat. And that's why some, you know, people that, in particular, America is, Americans are fundamentally insulated from hardship, no matter what your level of economic quality of life. The worst case here is still pretty damn good. The motivation necessary to actually rise to the very top, you know, sometimes Americans don't have that same motivation. I stopped doing the USA team because parents and kids started thought I was too, heavy, too hard on them. So we can look at the results of the people since that time, where they've gone in the QS and under the CT. And there's not many of them on the CT. I mean, Connor and Kainoa, Kainoa are you know, the two that made it through. The rest of the people with aspirations, even if they're talented enough, they're not hard enough on themselves. They don't drive themselves hard enough. What are some of the tactics or ways you can train to build that mental toughness that you've seen work well over time? Firstly, it's a broad array of skills, small waves, big waves. Small waves is about quickness and agility. So you take someone like Andy Irons, incredible and gnarly waves, and yet he could generate speed out of nothing. So in my mind, he invented the pumping the energy into the board. So that was a skill and a technique for small waves. And yet he could then put full power down in pipeline and chopu and places like that. And there's only one way to learn in gnarly waves like pipe and chopu that's to go there and get your ass beat. There's only one way in big waves, and that's the hard way. And so sometimes that's a barrier of entry to people. When we took the NSSA team to Hawaii, we told them to bring seven, six boards, and we just threw them in the water at sunset and in 10 or 12-foot windy days. And, you know, there's lots of stories by people like that. It was scary. But, it, you know, here's the deal. It was go out there now or get on a plane and go home. This is an absolute necessary rite of passage. And that's why you see someone like Jack Robinson, who's a talented surfer in small waves, but on gnarly waves, like there's, there's maybe one or two people in the world ever that are as good as him. You know, you look what he did to the box last year was just like priceless. And that's because he's been out in really gnarly heavy waves over and over again. So you're going to put him out at Chopu, you're going to put him out at Cloud Break, you're going to put him out at Pipe. I mean, the guy's going to be an instant high-level competitor, especially in hard waves. And that's because he's done the work. Fast forward now, this new thing going on with surf parks. That's kind of why we're here, is to take everything you just shared, that mental toughness, that get out there and the gnarly experiences. And now you think about doing this in a pool, which almost, when you put it that way, sounds almost like way easier, luxury. 
But how do you think about surf parks fitting into this training regimen and helping to kind of shape that athlete of the future? Well, I've always believed in surf parks. I'm the guy that did the Inland World Championships at Allentown. I look at some of the pictures, you know, in my memory, it was just horrible. But I look at some of the pictures and I compare it to Thaley Street in Laguna Beach and it actually stacks up. People surf in California and on the East Coast is pretty woeful most of the time. But that wave there was like that every day. So the ability to actually get repetition, which is you need a lot of waves, it's that 10,000 hours thing, you know. you got to get a lot of waves. you got to ride a lot of waves. you got to practice things over and over. And we're seeing it now at BSR where they've got that wedge section and, you know, the 11-year-old girls landing Air 360s. There are... Josh Kerr's little girl and the other girls are doing better aerial maneuvers than any surfer, women's surfer on the world tour, without doubt. And that's because they're getting the repetitive practice in that one wave over and over again, front side, back side. I think it's important from a repetition standpoint, but the things you don't get in a wave park is big, powerful, gnarly waves. So this is a challenge to you guys over there in the wave park world. You got to have a wave machine that will produce a 10-foot gnarly wave with a stand-up barrel, not a crouch-down, lay-down barrel like in Lemoore. So that's another goal for the future, for the wave park world, to be able to slice and dice. And actually, the people at Surf Lakes, with the one plunge, with five different reefs, with lefts and rights, they have 10 people surfing at the one time, but they have different types of reefs. And so they have a dredging right-hand barrel that's maybe head high and when Joel Parkinson can't make a takeoff you know that thing's pitching so it's actually good to see that a machine in its uh, formative years being able to generate that kind of a wave and so what's going to happen the progression that's going to occur quickly now because of competition right so you got the Kelly Slater wave park which is generating one experience and then you've got the the cove from Wave Garden, and then you've got the BSR one, and Palm Springs Surf Club's got a different one, and Urban Surf's going to use using the Cove, and you've got all of these different manufacturers producing different technologies to create waves, and they're uh, they're successful in creating high volumes of quality waves, which is actually, if I go surfing down here in Laguna, you know, if I have five waves, uh, it's a pretty good session. But I know I could go to BSR or the Palm Springs Surf Club and maybe get 20 waves. It'd be pretty unbelievable. And what if you went to Surf Lakes when they get that thing rocking and rolling? You might be able to have two or three sessions a day with 20 waves each. Like, that's a big deal. That's value for money. A lot more frequency, a lot more opportunity to train, get out there, get after it. I'd love to hear more about your experience in Lemoore at the Kelly Pool. You've been out there a couple days. Is that right? Yeah, I've been twice and I was really intrigued because obviously the first videos that came out, the wave looked unbelievable. And one of the things is that you, know, you stand there and you go, okay, the machine starts up and it's heading down the machine and you're looking at the back of the right-hander with the wind is offshore blowing up the face and this thing just goes and goes. It's 500 yards or something. It's unbelievable. But what blows your mind is the machine turns around and comes back the other direction towards you. And there's a left-hander coming towards you. So this backwards and forwards thing, is just sort of like, 
spun my head out for a bit. I couldn't really understand it, but there it is. So conceptually, I think it's actually really amazing. And then the, the length of the wave is incredible. The left-hander, you know, I know that they can dial up all different sorts of waves, but the left-hander was kind of crumbly and it was actually the feel of the white water washed out at the bottom of the wave. It's hard to get around. The right-hander, because it's front side, I really related to much better because it's most, the prevailing wind is offshore. And the thing is that it's this whole trip where you, you, know, you hear 30 seconds to go and then you hear the machine start up and then you're sitting in a dead flat pool and then all of a sudden this piece of energy pops up like a peak and you've got to take off on this thing. And the, the right-hander is fast, just really, really fast. You've got to go and go and go. And the, there's no visual indications. Like when you're riding an ocean wave, you will see a reef. And then you'll be, oh, here comes a shallow section. That wave there, it just sucks out. You know, there's no visual indicator. So what you have to do is learn how to count the numbers. The entire machine has posts with numbers. So you can actually surf by numbers, right? You can go, oh, I'm coming up to number 50, pretty 54 is the suck out piece, get ready. You know, they built this park up there because it was available. They had water rights, but it's a long way to go. And it's the experience for me was not that great because there's not enough waves. Waiting four minutes for a wave, doesn't matter how good it is. If you're there for like I, my last trip, I was there for three days I had one session, one evening with four waves. And I was there with my wife, who's a you know, world champion surfer, and she rode none. Because the infrequency of the waves, when we go surfing, we just want to bust out there and grab a bunch of waves, and that's part of the stoke, right? You know, this whole idea, this wave is, I've got four for my three days, that's so valuable, you can't afford to blow it. And I blew two of my waves, didn't make a left, didn't make a right, so I'm down to two. So I was not going to do anything other than make that wave. I've made the left, I've made the right, but I don't want to go back because I don't want to sit around watching other people surf. Surfers want to surf. We don't want to watch other people. In essence, you know, the experience of going there and just watching a surf contest and swapping that for lowers really ignores the actual zeitgeist of surfing. And lowers... You sit there and watch the contest, but you can take your kid down the beach and surf middles. Take a break from the contest, get a wave, hang with your kid, do all this sort of stuff. It's really, really friendly to families and dads turning their kids on, you know, let's go and get an autograph from Kelly. Whereas there's actually, there's a further division. There's the people that have driven to be spectators are actually fenced off from the people who are there at the park as VIPs. So it's really very, very different to the event that it replaced. The fact that it's you know, marginally commercially successful because there are elite people that can afford $50,000 to rent the park for a day actually really goes against the grain with my thinking because you know, surfing's meant to be free. It's meant to be an open playing field for everyone. And the idea that you know, Apple executives can throw down 50 grand and just go there and, and surf a morning and then bail just doesn't jive with me. You know, I came from a blue-collar background. My grandfather worked on the wharves. The new parks that are coming up, whether it's Surf Lakes, whether it's Wave Garden, whether it's what the BSR, these technologies 
give the average person the opportunity to inexpensively surf a bunch of waves and have a really great experience. And, you know, we're all equal. That's the proletariat, right? I run retreats at a five-star hotel with some pretty wealthy guys, and we go surfing where other people surf. And it's, we're all equal because we're just people on a surfboard going surfing. And this is one of the really beautiful things about surfing is it equalizer. And the Kelly Slater Wave Park is the exact opposite of that. It's expensive and it's built for corporate retreats for wealthy executives. And, you know, I don't like the vibe. I don't want to drive there again. In fact, I won't go back. But I would love to go to one of these other places where I can ride a bunch of waves. What do you think happens to this new generation of surfers that don't have to hunt for their waves like you did? Don't have to go track through the bush and go figure out how to access a wave and when to go and check the conditions. Just kind of handed to you on a silver platter in Lemoore or Waco. How do you think that changes surfing? Now we have people learn to surf in the park and then we have the ocean. And you see it in a microcosm in Europe, firstly with that river wave in Munich, and then the machine that's been developed by City Wave that is the same standing wave with the water rushing up the face like a river wave. And you see people, Germans in particular, one of their last events was won by a Ukrainian wakeboarder. These people are coming from other sports and they're learning how to ride this wave and they become you know, quite good because they're watching surf videos and they're learning maneuvers. But now you see them transition, you know, because I follow a lot of these people on Instagram, and you see them transition so they, they go down to Portugal for the winter. And then they're in the ocean and learning how to surf in the ocean. So there will be never will the idea of nature in the ocean ever be replaced because that's where you put your big boy pants on and that's where you go and get your ass kicked. You, know, you paddle out at sunset and you realize, holy mackerel, there's a mega rip. If I lose my board, it's going to go out past Camuland. I'm going to have to chase it. I might die. And so the stakes raise, but this fundamental low level of quality and style of surfing that gets developed in these parks will be tested in the ocean for true validity. It's going to be a, a wake-up call when folks kind of experience that ass-kicking for the first time after, especially if they grew up surfing in one of these parks. So I, I think it'll be an interesting sort of cultural divide between the people who just prefer to surf in the ocean. It's free. They've got their local spot. Versus the people that have, you know, chosen a park as their primary experience. But I'm sure excited to get in and experience it more myself and kind of get a better sense for what it's like. When you think about wilderness, you think about wide open spaces and you think about there being no people and you think about wild animals. Like there's a really special experience by hiking up into the mountains. And that's what I experience when I go back to Western Australia. I can paddle out at one of those reef breaks by myself amongst a school of salmon, knowing that there are big sharks out there, and I'm four or 500 yards offshore by myself in 10 to 12-foot waves alone. And, and again, I'm brought back to that idea of self-reliance and my capabilities in the wilderness. If my leash breaks, can I swim the 400 yards in? If I get caught inside by a set, will I get pounded? Will I be okay? Just yesterday, a, a guy got attacked by a shark in Western Australia. It was as big as a land cruiser, they said. 
Yeah, fortunately, it chewed his leg, but it didn't bite it off, so he lived. So it was at the same bay that at Bunker Bay, which is near Cape Naturalist, north of Yelling Up, and those really vital and valid experiences for us as surfers to have, because we have to test ourselves against the force that controls everything we do, which is nature. What can we learn? Like the roadmap to be up to being a competent surfer in big Hawaii or big Western Australia is it's a thick book. It's an encyclopedia of surfing and physical skills that, you know, people should aspire to actually go through chapter by chapter and learn this stuff. I mean, bouncing off the reef at Pipeline, that's a special experience. And that's what's so really extraordinary about surfing for me is this dichotomy of experiences. Yes, I would love to go out to Palm Springs and surf the Palm Springs Surf Club and ride a few waves, in this, which would be a better experience than what I get down here at Laguna. I can wake up in the dark and go down to Laguna by myself with no one there and no noise and be amongst nature by myself. And there is nothing more spiritually uplifting than that experience of you immersing yourself in nature and getting the feedback from nature, which is how our species ended up being like we are. It's because we learned how to be part of nature. So the separation from nature, it's a bad thing. There's so many positive aspects that, um, you know, why do you see people walking on the beach with their dogs? There's something truly amazing about the experience of going to the beach and the energy and life force that is the movement of the ocean. It's a spectacular thing. Those are the things you miss if you go to a wave park. You have a lot of passion for capturing that vibe and helping others to feel that too. And maybe you could talk a little bit about surfing.com and what you're working on there because as you described it to me, it's, it's really about helping people, whatever they're riding, whatever they're doing, to just get out and experience that connection to nature, the connection to riding waves. When you look back at my background, I learned to body surf with a hand plane with my dad. I rode a, a Pipo kneeboard. I borrowed a, a board out of the surf club. Those are, are three distinct surfing experiences that were before I actually uh, got my first surfboard, which was 9.6. My second surfboard was 9.6. My third surfboard was an eight-foot V-bottom. So I was in the shortboard revolution. I rode and shaped twin fins, you know, before Mark Richard made him famous and went over the falls on a five-foot twin fin at Margaret River on a 10-foot day. This huge experience in terms of the types of equipment, and I'm open-minded, you know, we used to run the bodyboard tour and all of these high-performance surfing that you see in the wave park, the bodyboarders were doing years ago, aerials and flips and all this sort of stuff. You know, just look at Mike Stewart and all those guys. They, they're doing amazing stuff. Have you ever seen Mike Stewart body surf? It's mind-boggling how incredible he is. It looks like a dolphin in a wave. It's absolutely incredible. My mind is sort of like open to all of these experiences. You know, you grew up in Australia with the surf club, so there's guys paddling skis and paddle boards and there's surf boats coming in. So our world of surfing, in my mind, is sort of so big and so more expansive than this narrow shortboard, I'm going to ride shortboard till I die and I'm going to watch the world tour and competition. At surfing.com, we're going to redefine what the word surfing means. 
as a noun and as a verb. It's going to mean everything that you do in the water where there's some sort of energy, writing some sort of thing. And so that means these guys that are writing, I saw a, a photo of a guy writing down a river rapid on a log. And I'm just going, well, the guy's surfing. I saw a, a video of a guy jumping off the riverbank into a standing wave in a river and body surfing that thing. There are guys that are riding boards in Hood River on the wake of a paddle steamer. Josh Kerr was just in Houston riding six-foot wake waves off a tanker. So there's all of these, you know, stand-up paddle, stand-up paddle races and learning how to ride a 14-foot race board with no rocker on waves. These are the sorts of experiences that I love to have to broaden my skill set as a surfer. And also, each time I reach out, I find a whole new community of people in the world of surfing that are kind of cool, really nice people. Have a look at the evolution of foiling, how it's now guys are riding boards two foot long and carving backwards and forwards on you know, waves that barely break. There are now guys with sails that are going upwind and downwind and catching tons of waves, guys riding waves and pumping back out and riding more waves on foils. The explosion of different pieces of equipment and different ways of riding waves, downwind paddling on waves that are unbroken was kind of unheard of in my time. But now you're just going, guys are stand up paddling, riding those waves. They're now riding them on foils. All of these things, it's just absolutely intriguing to me how many different ways it is to go surfing and how many different types of people you meet. I've got friends all over the world because I'm kind of like that. I see someone from a different culture and I, oh, hi, how are you? Where are you from? And now we talk and now with the way the world is so small with Instagram, I'm constantly communicating with friends of mine in Spain and, you know, the Hasulio brothers from Hungary and one of them's in Portugal and the other one's in Bali. And this connection with people all over the world, this massive community we have, and we have all have the same thing in common. We just love to ride waves. And to us, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, red, brown, green, shortboard, longboard, whatever you are, you know, so long as you ride waves, if you're a beginner, like high five that person and give them some pointers. Encourage them to do better. Welcome people to our community. So in essence, surfing.com is about all of that. And it's about just welcoming people and it's about telling the story. So, you know, I just became friendly with a guy who does surf lessons. He's a Brazilian guy that lives in Portugal, but he spent half his life in Sri Lanka teaching surfing. And I've become friendly with a guy that runs the Ashram Surf School. That's a yoga and surf school in India. This is the kind of ideas that make our world so big and are so interesting that uh, when you're inclusionary, when you're inviting all these people into your world and you're encouraging them, you create a really, really cool vibe, a positive vibe. So there are people running businesses. So in surfing.com, we're going to give them a platform where, they, where that guy in Sri Lanka can promote his surf coaching business. So if someone from Europe wants to go to Sri Lanka, they'll be able to find his contact information on surfing.com. Two years ago, I was coaching when Sean won the world title. We went to the Canary Islands. 
and Las Palmas is the capital, there's a bunch of surf schools there. Like, did I know that? No. It's this huge place. It's kind of like Rio, massive surf vibe. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, this world that we live in that's evolved in this way in the 50 years I've been surfing, what a magical journey that is and what great experiences so many people are having. And so when people are paddling in the Great Lakes, they think they're surfing. People are, you're not just in Geneva looking at Lake Geneva, like you're thinking about being out there and paddling. One of our shows we're going to do is going to be in Lake Tahoe. We've got a friends of mine that do downwind, OC1 downwind, stand-up paddle. There's guys that surf there. The guys behind boats are riding skimboards or sups or they're foiling behind boats. I mean, all of these people, doesn't matter where you get wet, like if there's some sort of a wave, people are riding it these days. And that's a really cool idea. And so World of Waves is our TV show. We're doing 20 episodes. We're going probably 15 of them will be in America because of COVID. But we're going to drive and we're going to discover these experiences at all of these different places. And we are going to find amazing stuff. And, you know, we're going to go to Cape Cod. I was on an email today with a friend who's at Cape Cod right now. I mean, Cape Cod is just like amazingly beautiful. We're going to be going to Montauk. We're going to be down, going down the East Coast. What would a surfing show be doing going down to the Florida Keys? Like if you ever paddled amongst the mangroves out in the middle of nature, being high up and looking in the water and seeing all the sea life, it's magical. And so these are the magical ideas that is going to be in World of Waves and we're going to communicate those on surfing.com. And so we're going to create this massive global community of people that are just stoked to do what we do. That is awesome. Really inspiring stuff. And I'm stoked to see on the website here and in some of the materials you've shared, some of the kiters as well. I'm, I'm an East Coast New York surfer, you know, so it's, it's, we get a lot more wind than waves. So it's cool to see, you know, and what I like to do is just get my shortboard out, put the kite up, better than paddling, you know. And so, it's, yeah, it's stoked for the inclusion here. You need to look up Yahi Dayabowitz. He's a great surfer. He's a great stand-up paddler. He's, uh, you know, won world championships in kiteboarding. His barrels on his kiteboard at Cloud Break at, um, in Queensland, in that movie that he's done, are mind-boggling. And here he's in this massive barrel and the lead's going out to the kite, cutting through the top of the lip. And I'm just going, oh, my God, like you're an amazing surfer. And it's amazing the kind of response you get when you are enthusiastically congratulating someone for being incredible, which is so opposite to our closed shortboard world where everyone's pissed off and aggro at everyone else because there's not enough waves to go around and you're on a fucking sup and you're on a longboard and what are you doing out here, old man? You know, this whole love of the sport and sharing of the, the magic that we have in surfing in these urban environments, it's just woefully gone. And that whole local thing with the aggression and teaching kids to be aggro, that's bullshit. I didn't have to deal with that as a kid growing up because, you know, I surfed alone so often and I just don't get it. I'm stoked if I give you a really good wave and you have a good ride, you know, because I know what have I done? I've built goodwill 
And what's the next thing you're going to do for me? You're going to give me the next wave. And so this whole idea of take, 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 we just need to share the stoke and our world will be a better place. And certainly in the world we live in today, that's kind of an important idea. Growth mindset. I love it. Well, it's a hell of a story. What would be the best way for people to get involved with surfing.com and just learn a little bit more about what you're doing, what you're working on, or even if they're working on something in this space, how could they get in touch? We'll have a newsletter soon. The beta site will be going live about mid-August, which will show what we're doing. You can sign up and, and join a newsletter to so be there. You can go to surfing.social on Instagram and send us a message. The first World of Wave show will premiere in 120 million homes in the U.S. on October 31st. So it's Saturday and Sunday morning, and it'll be 50 weeks or 52 weeks thereafter will be World of Waves on TV. It's got bigger distribution than any surfing show has ever had. We'll have about a million people a week as an audience, and it's just going to be telling these stories of just being stoked to go surfing at all these different places. What's cool about Santa Cruz? Did you know that Steamer Lane is on the migratory path of the monarch butterfly? If you go 100 yards from the parking lot at Steamer Lane into the bush there, you go into this fairyland of trees completely covered with orange butterflies. These are amazing things. You know, I've got a thousand stories like that where you just go out into, into nature and you see things that are beyond belief. And so I think that we've just got to open up our minds a little bit and reach out a little bit further and explore our world a little bit more. And hopefully with World of Waves and Surfing.com, we can help inspire people to do that. That's incredible. And what would be the best way for people to follow you personally and check you out either on Instagram or otherwise on the socials? I'm Ian Cans. Sometimes I'm Kanga Cans. That's my alter ego. Instagram. I actually don't do Twitter and Facebook anymore because I find the politics too divisive. It's opposite to the message I think that we need to promote is we need to come together and deal with problems. We need to celebrate the differences we have, not just fragment into different tribes. And this is one of the, the really amazing messages of surfing is we all share a love for the same thing, and that's what ties us together. We can make the world a better place through surfing. What a way to uh, segue. I think maybe we should call it at that. That's uh, such an inspiring message, and I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to do this and share your story and really inspire people to get out there and just open their eyes. So thank you. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Good luck with everything you're doing. I, this is going to be a very interesting time. We couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, that's really the purpose of what we're doing here is to just talk to people that have a point of view and have been to, you know, experience these surf parks, or even if they haven't, just want to get the message out there around what it means to be a surfer and why that's important. And I think you've done an incredible job here just laying that out and Hopefully some people that are listening to this that have never been surfing might kind of take a second look, whether it's in a park or in the ocean or even just body surfing next time they're at the beach. I agree. I think the world would be a better place if everyone just shut up and got some, a few extra waves, you know? Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon.
Okay, see you, mate. This show is powered by surfparkcentral.com, which is the leading platform for connecting surf park operators and developers with wave technology companies, suppliers, and investors. If you're a consumer, an enthusiast, looking to break into the surf park industry, you can check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about our exclusive program for events, conferences, and exclusive content to help you learn about the growing industry and the key players. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do leave us a review if you like what you hear. It really helps us to get the word out, get featured, and get more people to listen in. Also, please check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com.